right, well, let's take our Bible here this morning, go to Luke chapter number 7. Luke chapter number 7 uh, here this morning. <clears throat> Mentioned last week, uh, we've been in the book of Hebrews in chapter number 11 for a better part of the year uh, dealing with uh, faith. And uh, we're, we're not done with the topic, although we're done with the chapter. And so we finished up Hebrews 11 uh, last week, but <clears throat> I'd like to take, a, I, don't, I don't know how many messages here on out, have a little bit of liberty, I guess, to kind of bounce around and look at some examples and stories of faith in the scriptures. And so probably for a, a couple months here, we'll, we'll do that. And I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be an encouragement and a blessing. And so Luke chapter number seven here this morning. Luke chapter number 7, and if you found your place there, let's stand together if you're able to, uh, to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter number 7, and verse number 1. Luke chapter number 7, we'll start reading there in verse number 1. It says this, Now when he, speaking of Jesus, had ended all his sayings, in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. Now, this is speaking of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus finishes the sermon and then goes back to Capernaum, which is kind of a, a home base uh, for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is in verse number 2. It says, And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him, speaking it was dear to the centurion, was sick, and here's how severe the sickness was, and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying uh, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not Far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Now, it might not seem like it at first glance in reading, but that is a powerful statement right there. It really is a, a beyond powerful statement. And so he goes on in verse number 8 and explains why he can, feels like he can make this statement to Jesus. For I, says the centurion, also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, go. And he goeth. And to another, come. And he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he, God, marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have found not, excuse me, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Had to go to a Gentile Roman soldier to find this kind of faith. It wasn't available in Israel. None of the Israelites had faith like that. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. 
I've titled the sermon here this morning, Great Faith from a Man Set Under Authority. Great man, Faith from a Man Set Under Authority. May God bless you of His Word. You can be seated. And thank you for standing in honor of the Scriptures here this morning. When we're dealing with faith, the object of our faith is really what is important. Let me illustrate that, okay? When we're dealing with faith, the object of our faith is really what's important. Not so much the faith that we have as much as it is the object that we're placing our faith in. Uh, I enjoy hiking. Um, I know it doesn't look like it much right now, but I do enjoy going out hiking and stuff. Uh, boy, if you ever go to Colorado and some of these other places, I love going up in the mountains and uh, Gatlinburg, Smoky Mountain, Tennessee area, you know, just love that. Uh, a bucket list of mine would be going up the Appalachian Trail. Uh, that would be awesome. I'll take a three-month sabbatical and just go do it. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Are you all awake this morning? Okay, here we go. So... <laughs> I love going out hiking and things, but I'll be honest, sometimes you go on some of these trails and you're like, has anyone used this in a while? And you come to a place where there's a bridge or a crossing and you're kind of wondering about the structural stability of this bridge. Now, I've never been on a hike before where I went across one of these swinging bridges that's got like the rickety planks and it's just dangling over like the Royal Gorge, you know. I've never been on something like that before. Uh, it's usually much smaller, so if, I, if it collapsed or fell, it wouldn't be like totally tragic. But imagine with me if you are, we're out on a hike, we're all together in a big group, and we're going on this hike, and we come to a bridge that is this massive swinging bridge with planks on it, the rope swinging bridge over a massive gorge or valley below. Okay, you got the picture in your mind, and you're there, okay? Now, when you're out hiking, it's the first time you've seen this bridge before. You walk up to it. What I would then be doing, because I'm about to put my faith in that bridge to take me from point A to point B, is I get out on the bridge and I start doing something like this. Right? I might get out where the ground's still maybe just a few feet beneath and you're kind of jumping on the boards and filling it and shaking the bridge a little bit. And you step back and you start, you start inspecting the bridge, right? I mean, that makes sense. It would be odd if you came to that circumstance. And instead of looking at the bridge, you stepped back and you go, just have faith. And you started trying to psych yourself up. Like, come on, you can do this. Just have more faith. Just have uh, 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 a better mentality about this. You, you need to have a better idea of what you're about to do. And, and you start trying to improve yourself to cross the bridge, thinking somehow if you can better yourself or if you can somehow psych yourself up, that's going to improve the structural integrity of that bridge. Okay, I, I'll, I'll just be honest. If I saw a hiker doing that, I'd be like, you okay, bud? Uh, it seems like there's a problem here because you're over there trying to look at yourself and focus on yourself and see, am I worthy enough, am I good enough to cross this bridge? Do I have the stamina and the strength to do it? I say, listen, I don't care if you got the stamina and strength, if that bridge isn't good, you're not going to make it across. It's going to fall. So here's the thing. When you're dealing with faith, the object of your faith matters a lot more 
than your faith does. Jesus actually said you only needed a grain the size of a mustard seed. Just a little bit of faith. But what matters here this morning is what are you putting your faith in? You see, you're out on that bridge and you're testing it out and you're, you're, I don't know if this is good or not. I just don't know if the structure's there. And you're inspecting and you're looking at the bridge itself. Is it sturdy? Is it secure? Is it going to hold me up? This morning, we do this. We're going to look at our God and we're going to say, is he worthy of having faith placed in him? You see, we, we've done a lot of work of talking about faith. And in many ways, we've kind of examined our faith. Do we have the right kind of faith? Do we, or, we, or do we have faith as it needs to be? But this morning, we do this. If we could look at the object of our faith and say, is he worthy of having faith placed in him? Because even just a little bit of faith placed in the right area will take you from point A to point B. Across the massive gorge, if the bridge is sturdy and secure. I'll just go ahead and give you a little bit of a hint here. He is. Our God is absolutely worthy of having faith placed in Him. So just for sake of making sure we're all on the same page here, I know we're not preaching Hebrews 11 again, but Hebrews 11.1 gives the purest, most wonderful definition of what faith is. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay? So faith has substance, and it has evidence, something that you can point to and say, see... You can have faith because of. So as a believer, we understand faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That the Bible is what has substance and what gives us evidence. It, it is that, that thing that we can put pure and absolute trust in over and over and over again. And it absolutely is accurate and true. The word of God will always be accurate. You can put your faith in it. So Faith, if we give it a real loose definition based on Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is believing God's word enough to act upon it. And then we have all these illustrations of what that then looks like, that faith. So in Luke chapter number 7, we get an amazing example of faith. Actually, an example of faith where God himself turns around to all those that are following him including 12 hand-picked men, and he goes, uh, all of y'all have royally failed compared to this guy. Because I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. I had to go to a Gentile to find this kind of amazing faith. So what kind of faith, this so great faith, no, not in Israel, is talking, is described here in our text. Now, just as a way of giving some context to the story here, uh, verse number one tells us Jesus has just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you can read about that, of course, Matthew 5 through 7. Earlier here in the, the Gospel of Luke, you can read about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. After he finishes preaching that, he's returning to Capernaum. Again, kind of like a, a base of operation. Jesus is in Capernaum more than he's anywhere else. A lot of the disciples were for, from Capernaum. It was a very large city on the west side of Galilee. And Capernaum uh, was a heavy Roman-occupied city. So obviously all of Israel right now is under the occupation of the Roman Empire. But there's a heavy presence of Roman soldiers and Roman influence in the city of Capernaum. So if you were to go anywhere in Israel, 
Uh, Jerusalem and Capernaum are probably some of the heaviest infiltrated areas where there is a Roman presence that is there. So we have here a man in the story called a centurion. We don't have his name. Uh, All we know him by is that he's a centurion. A centurion would have been a soldier that was in charge of about 80 to 100 men, 80 soldiers, and then with the slaves and other people that would be a part of that group, it would make up about 100 people that was in it. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment, and we'll all get royally confused together, okay? Uh, so this centurion, it appears, was a man who was a, uh, a convert to Judaism. He believed in the one true God. So he had forsaken the Roman uh, plethora of God, polytheism, of believing in uh, Zeus and, and, and Hades and all the other gods that was there. And he has embraced the God of Israel. And he is a believer now in the one true Jehovah God. So he seems to be a convert, so much so that he seems to have this love for the Jewish people and love for Israel. That's weird. It's really weird. The Romans did not do that. The Israelites hated the Romans, and in turn, the Romans thought the Jewish people were scum, that they were weird, all the religious practices were weird, they hated the land of Israel. There's tons of historical accounts that if you got sent to the Middle East area and Israel there, it was like terrible for a Roman soldier. That was like being sent off, like terrible, I don't want to be here, right? And so it was more of a stepping stone in a military career. But for this man, he loved the Israelite people and he loved the nation. He was a convert and believed in the one true God. So much so that he loved the nation, he contributed to them building a synagogue. That's how the Jews described it. They said, this man is worthy of your attention, Jesus, because he loves our nation and he hath built us a synagogue. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, if he facilitated it happening or if he gave the funds for it. We don't really know. We just know this. He was involved in a synagogue being built there in Capernaum. So this is a man who obviously has some influence and really loves the Israelite people. <clears throat> now, the unnamed centurion was also a very humble man. <clears throat> Uh, In verse number six, he tells Jesus, he sends a servant to him and he says, I'm not worthy that you should come to my house. Uh, If you showed up at my house, I I feel like it would be an unworthy thing. You can't step foot in here, not because I don't want you, but because I am unworthy to receive you. You're too good for me, Jesus. Very humble. So this is a man who had quite a testimony. Now, his testimony doesn't stop there because he has a sick servant at home. You say, well, what kind of servant? I, I, I don't know. He has uh, around 100 men that are in his command. It could be one of the slaves that was servants there. It could be something in his household that had nothing to do with the military portion of it. It could be one of his soldiers. I don't know. It's just described as one of his servants, one of his subordinates, people that are under him, was sick. And he's described as having this, sick of the palsy. Now, the palsy is usually something that would cause somebody to be lame. They're unable to walk. But this obviously was a very severe case because verse 2 tells us that he was going to die. He was at death's door and was about to die. And so this centurion does something that's very unusual. If there was somebody that was sick, especially sick unto death, the normal course of action would have been this. Go take him to the infirmary and we need somebody to replace him to do his job. Get somebody new in here to take this servant's place because he's not doing his job. 
But what did this centurion do? He took him, not to the infirmary, but to his own house and started to care for him there in his own household and began to take care of him. We don't know the relationship between the two, but it actually describes him that he loved him. Verse number two again says that he was dear unto him. So this was a, a, a clear example here. And maybe make a little bit of application here. If you're in some position of authority, uh, have this kind of relationship with people that are under you. If you're a boss or a manager or in charge, you got kids, uh, whatever the case might be, there's somebody who is underneath your authority. Be an authority figure that loves the people that are underneath of you and takes care of them and is willing to be like this type of guy. Uh, what a testimony. Uh, boy, don't, don't be the boss that everyone goes, oh, I hate that guy. And I hate that girl, right? Uh, be the type of boss that you would want to have. And this centurion was one that just was a perfect example of taking people that he had the oversight over. Okay? Now, the servant was sick. Uh, again, we've already described this. Um, Matthew chapter 8 would describe him this way, saying, Lord, my servant is homesick of the palsy, grievously tormented. So we know he had the palsy. Verse number 2, he's sick unto death. So... Again, this is an unusual situation that he is in the centurion's house and he's being cared for, but it's become a very tragic situation. So now we got a little bit of the backstory. So here's basically what's taking place. The centurion's servant gets sick. The centurion moves him into his household and begins to care for him. There's news that comes to this Roman soldier, this centurion, that Jesus has entered back into Capernaum and he distributes servants to go and get Jesus and bring him to the servants. Now the Jews tell Jesus that this Roman Gentile is worthy of him coming. They say, hey, you need to come. This is really worth your time. And then there's a second group that's sent by the centurion, some friends of the centurion, that show up and they catch them halfway there. And they say, listen, the centurion said you don't really need to come. He's not worthy to have you in his roof. All you have to do is speak the words and you will have him healed. So here's where this amazing faith comes in. So the Roman soldier says this. All you have to do is say the word, my servant will be healed. And then he gives an explanation of why he believes that. He says, because I too am a man set under authority. Now his position in the Roman army was interesting. All right, y'all ready to do this? All right, we're, we're going to try our best to, to go through this. All right, go ahead and put the, the image up there, and we'll see if we can get this figured out. All right, this is a uh, Roman legion. Okay, a Roman legion was made up of around 6,000 men. So if you were a normal footman soldier in the Roman army, this is how this would break down inside of a legion. So there would be a contraburnum. I know it's going to bless. If you're not a history buff, I'm so sorry. A contraburnum was made up of eight men, eight soldiers. They shared a tent. They were a bond that was thicker than blood. They were a tight unit. They did everything together. They were called a contraburnum. Now, a contraburnum then would have ten of those contraburnums of eight men that would be grouped together to make a sentry. So you have 80 men then that are combined together. The sentry would have a leader over it called a centurion. That's who our character is in the story. So he's a guy who's got between 80 and 100 men under him, 80 soldiers and probably 20 other servants and slaves and you name it, people that were there. 
Now, within every century, there was obviously the centurion that was in charge, but then there was a number two and a number three man, a standard bearer that was there also, and a trumpet player. The trumpet player was also the treasurer of the group and kept account of all the men's accounting and money that they used. Now, this century, I wish it stopped there, but it, it does and it keeps going. There's six centuries that are combined together. So you go from a contraburnum of eight men, you have ten of those, and you have a century. Now you take six centuries and you wind up with what's called a cohort. Getting it? Okay. So the cohort, this huge group of all of these centuries, six centuries that are there together, it too has rank and file. So where there are centurions that are in charge, there's now a person that's in charge of all of this group. Now, if you take ten of the cohorts, you have what's called a Roman legion. Now, in charge of this, you would have the cohorts in division. Cohort one, cohort two, three, four, all the way down to ten. Cohort one has a guy that's over it called the Primus Prius, and he is like the first spear. All these guys are veterans. They, uh, that cohort is twice the size of all the other nine. It is the high standard bearer. They would carry the eagle into battle. This is a high-ranking thing. And all the way down, you wind up with a guy that's in charge of all the legion. You say, preacher, please stop. It's going too far. It's too much. Now, some of y'all are military guys, and you're like, hoorah, right? You're like, yeah, I, I get this, right? I've always been amazed uh, the Lord didn't open up the avenue for me to be in the military. It kind of had other directions for my life. But I've always been enamored by the structure of our modern military. Uh, my uh, father-in-law, Evie's dad, is a retired Air Force, was in there 30 years, and uh, worked with the AWAC there in, in Oklahoma City. I know several of you uh, men and even ladies here this morning uh, were in different branches of the military. <clears throat> we won't talk about which one's the best this morning. Uh, <laughs> but I'll say this, there is, even in our military today, not only different branches, but within those branches, different ranks and functions, Right? I, I mean, there, there are those who are the grunts, you know, just out of boot camp all the way up to those that are uh, generals and those that would be dealing with the president and, and all the ranks in between. So if you're a military here this morning, you understand, at least in part, how this structure works. We say this, without order, there's chaos, now, I never went to boot camp. I've never experienced being in the military. But one thing I do know from talking to other people and watching videos and all that great stuff is knowing this. When a commander says something, you do it. Right? It's not like the commander comes in and he's like, all right, we're going to march. And everyone's like, well, I don't really feel like it right now. That usually doesn't go over very well, right? Uh, I mean, that's not how it goes. Actually, so much so that a, any successful military, there has to be an abandoning of individualism for the betterment of the unit. Okay, we understand that. Any successful military, there has to be structure and perfect order so that a superior can give a command to a subordinate and it is obeyed without question immediately. That subordinate might not understand that subordinate might not know why. 
but he has to obey immediately and do what his superiors told him to do or else the whole thing falls apart. Well, if you have a general saying, hey, we need these men here, the, the, the lieutenant that's over him can't say, well, I don't really feel like doing it right now. Well, what happens? You have loss on the battlefield. Men are going to die. Things aren't going to work. Now, the Roman army is impressive to study. They are, in many ways, one of the apex parts of military history in all of human history. And a lot of it boils down to this system. There was order, structure, and discipline. Now here this centurion, he kind of falls in the middle of this. We don't know if he's a, a veteran centurion that would be like a, a high-ranking one or if he's just one of the lower-ranking guys in one of these uh, centuries. We, we don't really know. But we do know this. He had people over him. And he had people under him. He was a man who understood rank and authority. So he tells Jesus through his servants, he says, here's what I do. If I tell my servant, go, here's what he does. He goes. Why? Because he's a subordinate and I'm a superior. And that's the way the military works. And so if I tell him to do something, there's no questioning. Immediately he goes. And if I tell another servant, come, he doesn't get to think and choose what he's going to do. He obeys the order or there's going to be major consequences. Why? Because I am his ranking officer, I am his superior, and he is the subordinate. If I tell him, do this, without question, they do it. Now, here's the, the amazing thing about this. This centurion just told Jesus, all you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. So what's so significant about that statement? Well, here's what this centurion recognized that apparently all the thick-headed Jews were missing at this moment. Okay, Jesus' words, not mine, right? He looks at the Jews and he says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. It's only a Gentile Roman soldier that's got this figured out. Here's what that soldier recognized. Jesus, you're not an ordinary man. Actually, you're... God. And because you're God, that means uh, the palsy, that's a subordinate of yours. Amen. It's under your authority. Good. What he recognizes, if I believe the God of the Bible as a convert of Judaism, I'm a Roman citizen, but I've, I believe in the God of the Bible. And because of that, I understand this. God stepped out on nothing and said this, let there be. And instantly there was. And he has absolute control over everything that is on this physical earth and everything that was, is because he made it. And he is the absolute authority on every bit of it. So when he told Jesus, all you have to do is say the word, he was declaring this amazing truth. You are God. Amen. And everything on this earth is under your authority. So all you have to do is say the word. Remember sometime after this, they're in a boat. And they're all, Jesus, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. <laughs> and Jesus, where is your faith? Peace, be still. The waves lay flat. The storm quits raging. And you remember the disciples' response? Oh, yeah, we knew you were going to do that because you're God. They still hadn't got it yet, had they? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This centurion had no problem.
Because he understood how this thing of authority works. If I tell my soldier, do this, he immediately does it. So Jesus, all you have to do, because you're God, is tell the palsy, out. And it'll be done. You don't even have to be there. Just say the word. Jesus marveled at that kind of faith. So the question here this morning for us kind of begins to boil down to this. How big is your God? Because for this centurion, God was pretty big. He understood that he had authority over everything. And all he had to do was speak the word, and it was done. I'm thankful, in my Bible at least, hopefully in your Bible as well, it declares this truth, that our God is the God who created all things, and in Him consists everything. He is the beginning, the end, the Alpha and Omega. Without Him, there is nothing. He is greater than anything we could ever begin to think or imagine. Our God is so great. He is so powerful. Let me read you a few verses here of declarations of how amazing and wonderful and powerful our absolute God is. He says this over in 1 Chronicles 2.6, The heaven and heavens of heavens cannot contain Him. Genesis 1.1 declares that He created the heaven and the earth. Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 28 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible. Boy, we could keep going with verses here this morning. I'll say this, there is no comparison to our God. He is mighty, He is great, He is supreme, He is above all, He is transcendent and high above all things. He is captain, chief, commander, the lily of the valley, the bright morning star. He is God Almighty. I mean, there is nothing He cannot do. He is absolute perfection. Holiness, righteousness is our God. He is perfect in all things. There's nothing He cannot do. So the question here this morning is, when you get to the bridge, when you're out hiking, do you stop and psych yourself up or do you inspect the bridge? Here, uh, the simple thing I'm going to ask you to do this morning is simply this. Inspect your God. Is He big enough to handle what you're going through? Well, I don't know if I can really trust the Bible in this area of my life. Well, quit inspecting whether you can trust him or not and start inspecting whether he can do what he said he could do. <laughs> Look at the object of the faith, not at how good your faith is. Because I'll tell you this, our faith is pretty weak sometimes. We rival the disciples in stupidity sometimes. <laughs> how weak and how small our faith is. But here, if we could just get our eyes off of what we think we can do and what we think our faith can accomplish and start to look at the object of our faith as God Almighty, I'm telling you, it will change your perspective on things. 
You'll start to see this small financial problem that you're going through right now, and you're saying, well, I don't know if I can believe God in the area of finances in the Bible. We'll start to say this. I absolutely can believe God in the area of the finances because I know who God is. I don't know if I can trust God in this area of my marriage. Marriage, marriage feels like there's problems and fissures and issues and cracks, and it's falling apart, and I don't know how to fix it. Quit trying to fix it and just believe God. Do what His Word says. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Wives, Submit to your own husbands. I mean, it's not a complicated thing, and yet our world flies in the face of it and says, that's archaic, that's stupidity, that doesn't work anymore. That's just, that doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. And yet, God's word is so clear. Simply just have faith in what God has said. Believe in what he said. He is absolutely able to be trusted in over and over and over and over again. Now, I'll submit to you, if you've ever been out in that situation before hiking, and you come to the bridge, and you start to inspect the bridge, sometimes what our eyes see and what our hands feel isn't quite enough, is it? Because you can sit there for an hour and test that bridge and feel it, and you go, you always do this, I don't know if I'm ready for this or not. Now, take it into the spiritual realm. Sometimes we come to a precipice of our life, and God asks us to step out by faith. And we sit there and we begin to inspect God and God's word. And we go, I want to believe God. I really do. But I'm scared to death of this. I've been there before. Well, even as a young man, when God called me in the ministry, I'm like, I don't know about that. I'm a little nervous about this. You want me to do what? Right? You want me to behave how? You want me to start doing what? Right? And sometimes we can, we can have this fear. We start to look at the bridge and we start, even we're examining God. We're not looking at our own faith. We're looking at God and we start to say this. I, I just don't know. I, I'm uncertain. I'm unclear. I'm, I'm a little fearful of this. And here's where the benefit comes in. If I'm out hiking and I'm inspecting the bridge and along comes a sweaty guy and he's running. Good morning. And he jumps on the bridge and he goes, clunk, 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 clunk. And he runs across the bridge, and I'm sitting there going. <laughs> he comes back, because I'm still too scared to cross the bridge. He finishes his workout, he's coming back that way. I go, whoa, 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 how can you just cross the bridge like this? I do it every morning. This is my morning workout. Been doing it for 20 years. You know what that does in my little heart? I, I, I was looking at the bridge, and I was trying to put some faith in it, but here's this. Somebody else has showed me that the bridge is trustworthy, and because I've seen that this bridge is trustworthy and it's been trusted for 20 years now, uh, I think I'll be all right to cross it. Seeing we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that's set before us. You say, I'm examining God and I'm looking at his word. And, I, and maybe you're new to the faith and you're, you're looking at this and you're saying, I just don't know if I can trust God. Well, look around, even just right in our church, and you'll see some people who have been down that path before and have crossed that bridge, and they found God faithful. Amen. And He's worthy to be trusted in over and over and over again. The object of your faith matters. And I can declare to you with absolute certainty here this morning, you can put your faith in Him. Amen. He will never, ever fail you. Let's all stand together as we come to a time of invitation.